This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we speak with a best-selling author about airships. While everyone knows about the Hindenburg disaster, the fatal crash seven years earlier of the British airship R-101 is a fascinating story. In the news, pilot reporting of medical conditions, the boom supersonic XB-1 demonstrator readies for flight test, two fatal military aircraft crashes, and the need for more air traffic controllers. That and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 763 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Max Trescott. He's host of the fabulous Aviation News Talk Podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Oh my gosh, summer is over and we're back in school again. (laughs) (laughs) Great to be here, though. It went too quickly. Also with us is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hey, wait, is, is this thing, how does this work? <laughs> what, what, what? It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a long time. You know, it was, it was nice of my fiance to remind me that we were recording tonight because it completely slipped my mind. Uh, yeah, you get out, of, get out of practice. But uh, someone who's always in practice, it seems, is our main man, Micah, who joins us this episode. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here, and I'm looking forward to a really interesting show. We have a guest this episode, going to help make it interesting. That's Sam Gwynn. He's a best-selling author and a Pulitzer Prize finalist who spent most of his career as a journalist, and that included stints with Time as bureau chief, national correspondent, and senior editor, and also with Texas Monthly as executive editor. Well, Sam has a new book out. It's a look at British aviation history titled His Majesty's Airship, The Life and Tragic Death of the World's Largest Flying Machine. Sam, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. It's great to be with you guys. Now, in your book, Sam, you look at this uh, fatal crash, this 1930 fatal crash of Britain's airship R-101, and that was at the time, the largest airship, I understand that was 777 feet long, the largest at the time. Yeah, it was the largest thing that had ever flown. And it was a, it was a miracle. No one ever, I mean, it, it, the, the fact that it could be bigger by volume than the Titanic and also be lighter than the air it floated in was, uh, I mean, you know, gravity's an interesting concept in a world where everything else tends to go down. When something goes up, it's interesting. But when something 160 tons and 777 feet goes up. It's really quite something to look at. Very remarkable. Now, we're going to talk with Sam about the, I'll call it the airship era, uh, the nationalism that drove it in, in many cases and the promise that airships held. And we might even get into some uh, some of the current airship projects. But first, we're going to start off with some of the aviation news from the past week. Is everyone ready? Ready from the West. Mainly ready. Delaware's ready. All right, our first item comes from the Washington Post. 
This is 5,000 pilots suspected of hiding major health issues, most still flying. It's a concerning headline. It certainly grabs your attention. Uh, Micah, what's, what's going on here? It seems like somehow or another the FAA and the VA sort of got together and the majority of these pilots are receiving FAA, uh, VA disability benefits for some kind of typically mental health issue that has not been reported uh, to their, um, their aviation doctors. Um, and uh, it's at least 5,000. There may be more, 4,800, 4, uh, who might have submitted incorrect or false information as part of their medical applications. It's a little scary. It is a little scary. Now, we've talked in the past about uh, sometimes pilots being reluctant to maybe fully disclose uh, everything about their medical or particularly mental um, condition for fear of losing their their license but this is this is kind of different than that um max this is this is military veterans who uh, want to receive benefits from the VA, as Micah mentioned, the Veterans Administration. Um, but when it comes to their commercial ticket, they're not, it, according to this, they're not always being uh, fully up front. Yeah, this is a very complex issue. And I was surprised at the length of the article. It was 4,000 words. And there's just a lot to it. It really goes back uh, over a decade when Congress started pushing the FAA to try to see if these kinds of situations existed. And they started pushing them to try and compare databases. The FAA was very, very slow to start doing this. They did do it a few years ago in Northern California. They had 3,200 pilots who looked like were they were in these kinds of situations. They only took, I think, about th- roughly 40 of them to a court. And I looked up some of the sentences. Most of them uh, got probation, even though the, the possible sentence was up to five years and I believe a quarter million dollar fine. And they didn't pursue the, the rest of the cases because they said, uh, quote, it would clog the court system. I wonder if they didn't pursue them because the sentences were so light and they, uh, you know, just figured that, uh, you know, would, would not be a good use of, uh, you know, prosecutors' time and resources. Uh, however, although there was not jail time, they did lose their pilot certificates, which meant that they basically lost their jobs as well. I read about one of the uh, actions where the person continued to you know, appeal for a couple of years later. The uh, There are a couple of things going on. One is that the VA, by some accounts, has been very generous in overdiagnosing, you know, certain conditions. Uh, so there was a push from Congress to speed up the process to award benefits from people who came back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And it sounds like, uh, in fact, as one uh, one examiner said, that he was kind of surprised at you know what the VA would approve, uh, things that really didn't seem to be fully in evidence, but they were just being overly generous and granting these benefits. Well, the flip side then becomes, since some of those benefits were granted for uh, conditions that would not qualify for flying, they didn't report these conditions uh, when they uh, went and uh, you know, did their 
medicals, which have to be done uh, every six months to a year if you're flying a commercial type uh, operation. And it's unclear whether uh, you know some of these pilots got good advice, whether some of them were fraudulently trying to collect benefits that they didn't deserve. It is, I would say, a morass. It's just a, it's probably a, a lot of different conditions that that all led to that. But that's where we are. Yeah. And what uh, the spokesman for the FAA said, uh, Matthew Leonard, he said of those uh, forty eight hundred. Uh, who might have submitted incorrect or false information uh, as part of their medical applications. He says the FAA has now closed about half of those cases, but that so far about 60 of those pilots, uh, and I'm quoting now, posed a clear danger to aviation safety, unquote, and they were told to uh, cease flying on an emergency basis while their records are more fully reviewed. Yeah, a small number, but you're right, uh, Max. There are so many issues here. Uh, I mean, Sam, when when you fly, you, you have an expectation that the pilot up front is medically fit for uh, for that job. And it's kind of hard to tell how many of this large number of uh, people that you're looking at uh, really shouldn't be shouldn't be flying. Um, but like you say, Mike, uh, 60 so far is kind of a small percentage. But. That's possibly sixty cases where you know it could have been could have been disasters. From what Max said, it almost seems like it's the curse of getting what you wish for, right? From, yeah. From you know that they're, they're we're being generous with these benefits. They, oh, here you go. On the other hand, once you take it, now you're compromised. It's an interesting. It's fascinating the way you described it. And going after veterans, I mean, that's just sort of a a tough political cell in and of itself. Uh, I mean, there's a safety issue. Okay. People will, uh, I think, agree to that. But the fact that you're going after veterans, that won't sit too well with some people. Veterans is what's come up at this point. But the article also says that, uh, and I'm going to, again, quote from the article, the FAA has known for two decades that tens of thousands of pilots are probably flying with serious undisclosed medical conditions based on past investigations and audits. And experts who have testified before Congress have said that transportation officials, officials have long resisted pressure from lawmakers and watchdog groups to expand background checks on pilots by running their names through medical disability database maintained by federal agencies and state agencies. So it's not new. They've just decided, well, maybe we better start checking. And there's also a huge societal issue going on here that's sort of all behind this. As a society, we have recently started to say that mental health issues are no different than physical health issues, and we need to be upfront about it. And we need to admit to those things because they shouldn't be treated any different than a physical health issue. However, there are certain physical health issues that don't allow you to have certain jobs, just like there wouldn't be certain mental health issues that don't allow you to have certain jobs. And so this comes into play because this is one of those jobs where a, a mental health issue could cause you to keep from having it. Yeah. 
And I think that it's not that they're going after veterans per se. It's just unfortunate that that's who they have the data for. So, for example, many of us who are civilian pilots who uh, never served in the service or don't have any contact with the VA, there are no other records uh, that kind of corroborate what we have reported to the FAA. And so it's unfortunate for veterans that their data is available. So this is the first place that the the FAA has gone. So it appears that the FAA is unfairly singling them out, which is probably a fair argument. Yeah. Very complex issue. So we'll follow it and see where this leads. I think we'll end up talking about this again in the future. Uh, So moving on, uh, we see in Aviation Week, FAA clears boom supersonic for XB1 flight tests. Uh, We talked about and with Zoom, Zoom, boom supersonic um, in the in the past here on this podcast. And so you may recall that the XB-1 is the technology demonstrator. It's a smaller 71-foot-long uh, aircraft um, that uh, is a precursor to the, uh, you know, the full-size Overture aircraft, which is yet to be, uh, yet to be built. So, um, David, we see that the FAA has uh, issued experimental airworthiness certificate for the XB-1, and we ought to be seeing some flight testing in the near future. A civilian supersonic aircraft, that doesn't happen too often. So, I mean, the fact the FAA granted the testing, it will, we will actually probably in the next year have two civilian supersonic aircraft. We've got this one, and then we've got the X-59, which is the NASA aircraft. So, we, you know, we've talked about supersonic flight and whether it's ever going to happen and this is the this is the next step you know it's been a long time since we've had concords flying over this and this is going to be this aircraft is going to be flying over land not just water so the uh the xb1 is um to begin flight testing at mojave air and spaceport in california is that far from you max that would be down in uh, Southern California. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's kind of on the border, but yeah, I would I would call it Southern California. Okay. And um, they have been conducting some taxi tests. Uh, most recently, uh, a high speed taxi test where they ran it up to sixty knots. Um, in fact, that was only like five days ago. Within the last week, as we record this, uh, and uh, they have a video. Out. It's very short, but there is a video out showing the XB one. Uh, undergoing its taxi testing, I uh, will put that in the in the show notes. Uh, as far as uh, engines, engines have been an issue with Boom Supersonic because um, you'll recall probably the last time we talked about it, it was about the Overture engines and how Boom was unable to entice any engine manufacturers to to step up and make an investment in in an engine for it, and so Boom has said that they're going to go off and design their own, uh, which is kind of remarkable in and of itself. But for the XB-1, no problem. They're using three General Electric J85 uh, engines, and they're, they're small. It's a small turbojet. There's three of them. Um, they produce about 5,000 pounds each with afterburner, about 3,000 pounds of thrust without the afterburner. And that engine has been used for a long time. There's commercial versions, of course, without the afterburner, um, as well as military 
uh, applications. Uh, David, you probably know the F5 and the T38 use uh, this engine. Yeah, I mean the T38 has used it forever. You know the interest. the interesting thing about that engine was it was designed for a cruise missile. It was then import, incorporated into the F5, um, and it, I mean we have still F5s flying around in aggressor roles and stuff. It's been a very hardy, substantial, very efficient engine. With a with an afterburner, so I mean it'll it'll be interesting to see what comes up with this. Three of them, you know, most T thirty eights and F fives have two, so it'll be interesting to see what the extra thrust does with the third engine. Sure, it's also the engine that was uh, used on the scaled composites White Knight, interestingly, and uh, some Canadair uh, aircraft, as well as a set the Cessna A thirty seven Dragonfly. I don't even know what that is. The A thirty seven was a a small two seat. Originally, it started out as the T thirty seven, which was the trainer. Um, then the the A thirty seven came out of it as a growth, which was a Dragonfly, which was a small coin counterinsurgency aircraft. Um, we actually had them at Willow Grove at the base um, for the Pennsylvania Air National Guard. The Tweet or the Super Tweet or um, the Dragonfly. Very cute little airplane with a very small Cessna attack aircraft. Huh, interesting. And it's probably worth mentioning that uh, we had the CEO on the show, Blake Scholl, yeah. back in episode 463, 2017. So that was uh, six years ago now. And wow. people people can get to that by going to airplanegeeks.com slash 463. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, some more um, military news, some some sad news. Uh, you've seen a couple of accidents, a couple of crashes lately, fatal. Um, Micah, we saw an FA-18 um, that crashed uh, at uh, MCAS Miramar. Yeah, it went down uh, Thursday night, Friday morning around midnight. And unfortunately, we lost uh, Marine uh, Major Andrew Mettler, uh, who was flying an FA-18D and was part of the uh, Marine uh, All-Weather Fighter Attack Squadron 224, which is uh, part of the 2nd Marine Aircraft Wing that's based at uh, based in Beaufort, South Carolina, but he was flying out of, uh, of Miramar. Went down on government property just east of the base, apparently, and uh, we don't know why or, 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 or anything else, really, other than what happened. And uh, unfortunately, it was a week where we had uh, two uh, military Accidents. We also lost an Osprey and three Marines on board down in uh, in Australia at the northern tip of the Northern Territory, uh, an MV-22B. There were 23 on board, three passed. The others were taken to the Royal Darwin Hospital and were in serious condition. But uh, it's always horrible when these uh, people who are giving their lives for for us and uh, and these accidents happen. Yeah. Uh, for sure. David, do we know anything about how investigations of military accidents compares to commercial? The NTSB doesn't get involved in this, for example. Oh, the NT- N- NTSB can get involved if it, huh. if it occurs, if it occurs outside of, you know, in, if it occurs into a civilian thing. So um, I'm sure the National Transportation Safety Board or the NTSB will take some sort of cursory action because they're responsible for any safety accident that involves the transportation system. 
Um, but the military has an investigative core, and it's very similar to the NTSB. So they'll do they will do their own investigation. However, um, I mean they have all of that staff, and uh, they and they will file they will file a report at the end. Whether I mean, but like I said, if there was some civilian inv- involvement, of course the NTSB would be involved. Sure, that makes sense. The Osprey, the MV twenty two, or the V-22 has experienced several accidents over its uh, over its uh, lifetime. I guess, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but um, I mean, it's a complex piece of machinery. And the, the more complex, the more things can go wrong. Uh, the F-18, though, we don't usually, we don't usually see F-18 accidents very often, do we, David? Well, the F-18D is is a legacy aircraft, so it was one of the older ones. Um, it is interesting. The F-18D is a two-seater. Usually there's there's a, um, a weapon systems officer in the back. Um, the fact that there was it was being fly, flown solo is interesting, but um, they are older aircraft. The, um, the F-18Cds, which, the, which were the newest late early block F-18s, went to the Marines for a night all-weather attack, they're slowly going to get replaced by F-35s, probably F-35As, um, not the B vertical takeoff, but the F-35As. So um, it could have been age, it could have been an aircraft failure, it could have been pilot error because it was night. However, the F-18D is specifically designed to be flown in night and bad weather. So preliminaries, who do I... I don't think have come up yet. Um, and again, the V-22 is a complex project uh, thing. They were in Australia doing operations, and um, it is noted that it has had a lot of failures. And unfortunately, when it does go down, it usually is carrying people. So the fact that we only lost three is kind of a safe thing. But it's also one of the reasons why the military are getting out of the V22 business, you know, they need they need something that is not a first generation aircraft. If you go back and look at our first generation jet fighters, you'll know you'll see that back in the 50s and 60s aircraft crashes were common. Uh, the V22 is really the first of its type ever, you know. Now the army's going to purchase the Valor, which is the the follow-on aircraft. Um, with a lot of lessons learned from the V-22, but all first-generation aircraft tend to have issues. Yeah, and certainly I think one of those has just been the the readiness, uh, what percentage of them are available to fly at any particular point in time. I saw one being refueled at a nearby airport uh, here in Northern California, and I talked with a fuel guy, and, is, and I asked, why is this, you know, why are the blades still running on this thing? And he said, well, we're hot fueling them now because last time one of them came in here, they shut it down. They couldn't get it started afterwards, so they brought a second one in to help, and they had exactly the same problem. And I've read that, uh, I don't remember the, the numbers, but, you know, when the congressional reports are out in terms of uh, readiness, it just doesn't score nearly as high as some of the other airframes. Yeah, and when uh, VMMT-204 was up here last year at this time with a whole, whole group of them, there were usually at least two on the ground with a couple of Marines climbing on top of them and climbing all over them while they were here in training. Uh, it's just they require a lot of maintenance. There's a lot of moving parts on them. Yeah. All right, one more news item. 
Uh, this came from uh, from Rob, who had something come up last minute, so he couldn't join us, which is too bad because uh, he's a former air traffic controller, amongst other things. Uh, this is from Reuters. FAA hires 1,500 air traffic controllers, but staffing challenges remain. So um, the FAA had a goal this, for this year, for 2023, of hiring 1,500 air traffic controllers. And apparently they've achieved that. They're, they, the FAA, is looking for funding for next year, looking to hire 1,800 air traffic controllers that in 2024. Uh, there's a couple of interesting statistics. One is that about 2,600 controllers are currently in training. So that's a, that's a lot of controllers in the pipeline. But maybe even more amazing is the article reports that there were more than 12,000 applicants this year. So they hired 1,500 out of 12,000 applicants. I don't think the article says, but I'm curious. Is that because they could only take 1,500 or only had funding for 1,500? Or were thousands of the applicants wildly unqualified. I suspect it was probably the funding level they had. Yeah, I think there are only so many that they can run through. They've got an academy in Oklahoma City that uh, the controllers go to. Everybody goes to Oklahoma City to start as a controller. And I'm sure there's a limit as to how many people they can push through the the system at any particular time. What really struck me about that uh, 20, what was it, 26, 20, 2,600 in training level is that the total number of controllers is around 10,600. So 2,600, that's about a quarter of all the controllers are people who are in training. Uh, so that kind of tells you there's been a lot of retirements and they're bringing a whole lot of new people in. And it's just amazing to me that one quarter of any organization would would still be in training. Uh, Rob and I talked about this kind of issue a couple of weeks ago. And his comment at the time was he feels that the air traffic control facilities have never been fully staffed at any point since the PATCO strike in 1981 when uh, the president fired all of the uh, controllers. And he just feels like they've been playing a little bit of catch up ever since, which is remarkable when you think about that. That was over 40 years ago. Hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. While I was at Spurwink Farm, I uh, met and interviewed a recently retired air traffic controller. And we have that interview. Eventually, we'll get to it. Uh, but um, he just recently retired, and he came in right after Patco. It was Patco that got him the position. He loved the job. He talked about it quite a bit. And he also said, from his perspective, it's a great job to have. And he encourages young people to get involved in it right away because it pays really well. It has wonderful benefits and great retirement, uh, pension retirement situ uh, situations, benefits, so that if you start fresh out of high school or fresh out of college, you can be there, retire young, and have great a pe get a great pension and go double dipping, doing some other things. And you can he go truly camping. Recommended it. For you can go camping. <laughs> right. Were you were you a controller? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Again, we're speaking with Sam Gwynn. Sam, again, uh, welcome to the podcast. Let's start off maybe sort of defining some terms like airship. I mean, airships and blimps and zeppelins and, and, and you know, all of these different kinds, dirigibles. Can we explain that to our listeners? 
I, I could try to do it as briefly as possible. I mean, I think you're right. When people think about an airship, I mean, they probably think about the, you know, either Goodyear blip or the Fuji blip and very likely also the Hindenburg, which I, I don't think there's anyone on earth that hasn't seen, um, that footage. But if, if you go back really, the origin of these things were, were just hot air balloons in the 18th century, or, or you could put hydrogen in them, which is easy to make, or hot air, and they would go up. And the, the problem is they would kind of go wherever God or the wind wanted them to go. And unless you tethered them, like on a Civil War battlefield or a Crimean War battlefield, so you could, you know, they were good as observation balloons, they, were, they had limited use. And the, then in the 19th century, the French improved this with the first true, I guess, airship because it had a rudder and it had a propeller on it. And you can imagine how rude Goldbergy that thing looked. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but the problem was still, it was just, it was a, it was a balloon. It was just an envelope full of hot air. And as a result, you could only build it so big and then it would collapse upon itself. And therefore you couldn't lift that much. And this is a problem, a problem that was solved in the year 1900 by this magnificent looking <clears throat> German military gentleman named Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, like world record, uh, walrus mustache. Uh, and what he did was he decided that in order to lift a lot, you had to build something with a, a, a well, a duralumin or steel skeleton into which you could then put hydrogen gas bags. And then you could start to seriously lift a lot of weight. That thing was what we would call a rigid airship. That's the distinction. The, the Hindenburg was a rigid airship. The ship I'm writing about is a rigid airship. They've got a skeleton. They've, they're filled with hydrogen or, or helium, but mostly hydrogen gas bags. They can lift relatively... Uh, large quantities of things. And and when you see, say, for example, a blimp, you're still looking at just an envelope filled with, well, if it's the Goodyear blimp, it's filled with helium. But it's got, I think, a rigid keel, but there's no, in other words, there's, there's no superstructure on it. Um, and so uh, what I'm writing about, or my book is about, so, so the, the era that ends more or less completely with the crash of the Hindenburg and a few years before it, R101, is really the rigid airship era. When you think of the really big ones, you know, four or five, six, seven, eight hundred feet. I mean, you know, those were rigid airships. And the word Zeppelin is really just a trademark, like Jello is for sweetened yeah. gelatin dessert. It's just a specific brand of airship or, or, you know, or dirigible. Because he was the first guy that built them. I mean, he came up, he built this Count Zeppelin, Bound a, built a 450-foot-long version of these. I mean, it was his first one in the year 1900. Um, by 1906, 1908, he was able to fly these things a pretty good distance, way farther than the Wright brothers could, and with carrying a whole bunch more weight than, you know, just Orville or whoever was on the plane. And so, yeah, it became the, the Zeppelin was the word for it. And really, I mean, you know, it, it's an invention... Of, by, and for the Germans initially. They they were built for one purpose and one purpose alone. Count Zeppelin had, did not want to have a passenger airline and did not want to carry cargo. Well, or certain kinds of cargo. He wanted to use these things to bomb Europe. That was the point. Rain death upon the innocent civilians of, let's say, Paris or Bucharest or somewhere. And he indeed in World War I unleashed huge fleets of these things against seven European cities mostly against England, bombers. They were the first long-range bombers, the first weapons of mass terror. You can sort of go on with these things. But that, but those were all, getting back to your point, Mike, Zeppelins. 
they were and, and and it was years and years before anybody any other nation uh, could build anything even remotely like that and let's get into maybe if it's okay a little bit of the, the political perspective that was going on at the time the airship race in the 19 late 1920s and 30s is kind of like what the space race was in the 60s between uh germany and 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 and, and the uk was it not it wasn't quite like that it was more the um the British and the Americans trying to emulate the Germans. The Germans had developed this technology. They used it in World War One. At the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War One, that was it. There were no more Zeppelins. Okay, trust me, no more Zeppelins were going to bomb anybody, right? The Germans sort of cheated this over the years and figured out how to get one or two built. But basically, in the 20s, opened up the world of these giant rigid airships to Great Britain mainly and, and to uh, the United States, um, who then tried mightily and for a decade to really outdo the Germans. And so it was in, in a way it was that, but it was a, it was a delayed competition. Um, if you will, it was, it was the, you know, the, the British came up with the imperial airship scheme to populate the world with these things. The Americans were going to build them out of helium and which were going to be totally safe and couldn't possibly crash and, which which crashed anyway. But uh, what it was, in, in another sense of your question, I guess there was starting in the aughts, you have competition between airships and what the uh, airship community likes to refer to as heavier than air, which, which we would call airplanes. Uh, and there's a great competition. If you look in 1908, you know, Count Zeppelin was flying 12 hours continuously with eight people on board. The Wright brothers had only managed 38 minutes. So there was a, there were this kind of competition that goes on. And then at some point it becomes clear that, uh, you know, airships are never going to be great for short range travel. Um, but maybe they're the solution for long range because if you like, for example, uh, well, in the year 19, late twenties, uh, London to Karachi, which was then in India. Somebody did it in a, in a Hercules trimotor or something like that. It was, uh, no, maybe it wasn't that. But anyway, it was a, it was 12 bone rattling days in an airplane, 26 stops, constant refueling, you know, oil spattered, bumpy going over the deserts. An airship could make that in two days with one stop. So there was this theory that, that the competition as we go through the twenties is that, well, the airships, they might be really the way that the world will travel, let's say, from London to New York or from Toronto to Stuttgart or wherever. That, that There was a real possibility that that could happen. So in that sense, it was a race. It was a technology race that airships absolutely lost, just got completely obliterated in because their technology was deeply flawed, as it turns out. Airplane technology, which, you know, remember was pe there was a point where people said, you know, a wing could only hold this much. You could only load so much onto a wing. Well, they figured out wing loading and then they figured out engines and, and high altitude and pressurizations and all the things that they did. Airplanes were perfectible. Airplanes were improvable fundamentally. Airships were fundamentally flawed and not improvable and never improvable, which is why the last one of them effectively went down in 1937. So uh, tell us more about the flaws, about the uh, the reasons why the, the technology of the airships uh, couldn't improve over time. 
Well, there's one flaw, flaw that you can really see. The kind of the hero of my book is uh, R101, uh, which is, uh, you know, this the, the airship we talked about at the beginning of your your, your podcast, the uh, 777 foot long in 1930. It was going to be the ship that demonstrated how Great Britain could kind of populate the world um, with airships. So if you look at, let's just look at R101 and you can see immediately what some of the flaws are. Um, this is 777 feet long. It has about six acres of surface area. Uh, the surface area happens to be doped cloth in the same way that, you know, a doped airplane wing would have been doped in the old days. You know, doped cloth, very thin, doped. But, you know, the thing was had six acres of surface area. Now, if you've ever been in, a, let's say, a sunfish, a small, very small sailboat, and you've experienced what a 20-mile-an-hour wind does to a sunfish sail, if you're in the boat, you're, <laughs> you're, it's, it's all you can possibly do to keep that thing from tipping over. And that's a tiny little sail. And let's put a 40 mile an hour or 50 mile an hour wind, excuse me, on massive acreage of sail. The things were extremely difficult to fly in any kind of weather. They were, uh, you know, if you were in a rainstorm, they would gains you know, seven tons of weight within a matter of half an hour because the rain would soak the things, which would, of course, mean that they would have to go down, which meant they would have to blow off hydrogen. Um, the, the flaw that we all know, of course, and the reason we know it is because there's this 30 seconds of footage of the Hindenburg going up in Lakehurst, New Jersey in 1937. This is the flaw of hydrogen. They tried to argue for many years that hydrogen was inherently safe. Well, <clears throat> you know, We've all seen the Hindenburg, and actually there were, I think, 75 other hydrogen ball, fireballs that looked just like that, including the one I wrote about. It wasn't uncommon. A lot of them were the result of British fighter planes shooting in, in incendiary bullets, phosphorus bullets into them over England. But a lot of them were just in burning in their sheds and burning whenever they hit the ground. One of the things that, one of the real flaws of an airship was that because of this tremendous vulnerability to wind of any kind, when you were near the ground, these things were hugely dangerous. They, uh, uh, you know, a thirty mile an hour wind with an airship on the ground that wasn't tethered was was in airship was in serious difficulty and was probably just going to be beaten to pieces and then probably explode explode because something was going some kind of spark was was going to hit. Which meant that one of the other flaws linked to that was that if you were uh, flying an airship in a storm, you couldn't go down. So maybe theoretically in an airplane or a jet, you, you can land <laughs> if there's a storm. Theoretically, I mean, theoretically in a boat, you can go into a safe harbor, theoretically, but, you know, plausible. In a rigid airship, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred feet long, you can't because you're going to be beaten to pieces on the ground. And there's this really tragic moment in 1933 when this, you know, the Americans made this bid in the rigid, there's this rigid airship. There was indeed a competition between uh, Britain and America. The Americans had helium, which nobody else had, very strategic element. We didn't share, the Hindenburg was, you know, supposed to be helium, but we wouldn't let them have helium. Anyway, this big airship, built as a joint venture between Goodyear, yes, Goodyear, and the Zeppelin Corporation. Huge airship, the Akron, uh, filled with 
helium. Was this is supposed to be safe, right? Because helium would not go boom if a, a spark hit it. So it's the things out over uh, the, the New Jersey coast in March, and it's a terrible stormy night and everywhere they turn there's lightning they go to the east there's lightning and then they go to the west and they're fleeing east west north south up down they can't get away from the lightning and it's this tragic kind of four-hour flight from the storm because they can't go down they can't just land to get out of it and eventually you know one of the things that again if you've got eight seven acres of, of sail or something you know, updrafts are just absolutely horrendous. Uh, I mean, I get bothered by the little bumps, you know, when I'm flying in a 737 or something. Imagine the updraft on that size. So this, the Akron goes up 4,000 feet, an updraft, and gets just taken down in a downdraft, smash into the water, and 73 of 76 people died, and that was a helium ship. They're, they're, they were very difficult to navigate. Uh, they were way harder to fly than airplanes. I was not, I mean, I spent some time in the book, which you probably have some pages of how much harder to fly they were than an airplane. Why don't we talk a little bit about the, uh, the competition between the, the, the R100, uh, and, uh, and, and, and the R101 and how that created the problems that started this crash and, and put this whole thing together. So to yes, the the R one hundred and the R one hundred were sister airships, and I have to to uh, to explain this. I have to introduce something called the Imperial Airship Scheme. So in the middle nineteen twenties, the British now they were the Germans were not allowed to, you know, build again. They built a couple, they got them through, but basically they weren't allowed to build airships. So what the British were going to do, they came up with this idea, having come out of World War One with the greatest empire the world had ever known. I mean, nothing even approached the size of the British Empire after World War One, even though it was really shaky. Uh, you know, 25% of the globe was British. Uh, again, very shaky. You, know, you had the things going on. You had the Boer War and the Irish Rebellion and the India was seething and, you know, the, all the cracks in the empire you know, that would that, that, that we would later see. And so the Brits kind of looked around and they thought, you know, like one of the ways that we could kind of reassert our dominance would be through the air in the form of airships, long range travel that would reduce the time from London to India from 12 days to four days to, well, from 11 days to two days to, from, from, uh, from Australia, from a month to, you know, 12 days. Days. I mean, radical changes, in, and it's not because airships were so fast, it's just because they, they could just keep droning for 24 hours at 65 or 70 uh, miles an hour. And, uh, and so the Imperial Airship Scheme, which they launched, was really this incredibly visionary idea that Britain was going to populate the world with these long-range traveling airships. Literally, you just look up and you would see these ships of empire, move big ones. Big 700, 800 foot, 900 foot uh, things uh, going all over the place, and and not only would they be, not only would this be a great solution to making this empire smaller and drawing the whole time space continuum of the empire together, um, but the skies would be ruled with British technology too. And if you look at empire, you know the British Empire, it's kind of, you know, it was built on the pounding piston, right? The greased piston, the the, the magnificent steamships and warships and guns that were, and just the whole technology, let's say, that you put into a warship in the 19th century. 
this is Britain, British domination. Um, what they wanted to do was kind of replace Germany. This gets back to your question of the competition. Uh, replace Germany as like the main world builder of airships. And so the world was going to be not only um, populated by all these British airships flying through the sky, but it would be British technology. Okay, I had to tell you that because the first two ships that were going to prove this were R-100 and R-101. They were sister ships. It was a huge mistake that they ever did sister ships. They should have only done one. When they launched their imperial airship scheme to rule the world of airships, they came up with this idea. This was the, a, a labor government, the Britain's first socialist government. And so they said, okay, we're going we're gonna to have kind of a capitalist airship, R-100, which was going to be fixed contract, built by Vickers, here's how much money you get. You build us what you can. Just use basic Zeppelin technology. We're not going to get fancy here. Just give us the basics, and we're just going to do that. And that was to be the capitalist airship, so-called, because Vickers is, you know, as you all know, a, a very large industrial um, aviation-based industrial conglomerate. The other airship, R-101, the hero of my book, was the socialist airship. And in good socialist tradition, they were given anything you want. <laughs> it's like, go, it's the government ship. Give it a, give it. And, and so they were encouraged to load it with all manner of technology. I mean, pumping technology and material science. And they were the first people ever to put diesels in the air. I mean, diesels are not really a good idea in the air, but they put them up there anyway. These 650 horsepower uh, Beardmore tornadoes, you know, up there in these five nacelles, you know, I mean, this was radical technology, huge parachute harnesses holding these gas bags in all this technology. And so, so you start in 1924, really this competition between the capitalist and the socialist airship. And, um, and it was interesting because the main reason they should never have done this was they took what talent remained of the British airship establishment after a horrific crash in 1921 of the R-38, they split it. And, uh, you know, they they took some, I mean, uh, Barnes Wallace, uh, you know, one of the great aviation engineers in, in, in 20th century history, uh, he was given to the R-101. I mean, he, he should have been running the whole project. He was the only one who really knew how to do a lot of this stuff. So from a policy point of view, it was very weird to create two airships. Um as it turns out, R101 got the, all of the attention and all the affection and all the, the press didn't even pay attention to R100, even though R100 crossed the Atlantic and back. But uh, anyway, it was it was part of the the difficulty and the problems with, with airships in, in Great Britain in the 1920s, which was, you know, you, you had these competing technologies, you know, for the toward the same goal. And it turned out that it was that technology that actually is what ended up destroying the R-101 on its maiden voyage. To, to understand what, what destroyed uh, R-101, yeah, it was partly that uh, the, the, the parachute harness technology. But, you know, if you look at one of these airships, it's a crazy mixture of strong and weak. They took the skeleton, which is duralumin, which is an al aluminum alloy and, and, and or steel, and they made it hugely strong because they thought, you know, we can make it so strong and it, it won't break in half like the disaster in, in 1928. But inside there, the gas bags, many of which were 
seven, eight, nine, ten stories high. I mean, the largest gas bag in R101 was, imagine a cheese wheel, ten stories high. It was made out of cattle intestines, literally. Imagine sausage casings, okay? That's, that's what it was made out of because hydrogen is the lightest element. Hydrogen tends to get out of wherever you put it in because it's small and it's light. And cattle intestines, the cecum of cat, cattle and oxen, were the only thing that could do that, at least the only thing the Germans could figure out that could do that. And so inside these ships, you have, and these things have cotton backing on them, but you, you can drop a tool through it. I mean, workmen fell through them all the time. They were very, very flimsy, incredibly light, incredibly flimsy, filled with, in the case of R101, 5.5 million cubic feet of hydrogen. And, and they were protected from the elements by this incredibly thin cotton or linen outer cover that was just a, a big kind of like wrapping a sheet around this skeleton and putting some airplane dope, I'm sorry, putting some airplane dope on it. And uh, in all of the testing that, that, that was done for R101, they really didn't pay attention to the two most vulnerable parts of the, of the ship where the outer cover, they never tested it in weather even though huge strips of it would come flying off, you know, 140 foot long strips. They never tested, they, they never solved the problem of the gas bags rubbing up against bolts and girders inside the aircraft. Um, so there was all this hydrogen leakage going on. In part, in part, my book is a tale of how they didn't pay attention to what they should have paid attention to. They failed to kind of understand the risk that they were taking. And part of what the book is, you know, if you... One of the things that Lord Christopher Birdwood Thompson, the Secretary of State for Air, great title, right? Um, he was over all civil and military aviation, the RAF and everything else. I mean, one of the things that he insisted on from the beginning is that this thing be, as he said, as safe as a house, except for the millionth chance, you know, that this was just going to be absolutely safe. And yet it was an experimental prototype. And there is no such thing as a safe experimental prototype. And they really didn't test it. And even before it had been tested, he wanted to bring 100 members of parliament up. And in fact, they brought all kinds of grandees up into the ship while it was flying around were untested. He, he could have killed, he could have killed those, he would have killed those 100 if they had gone up. And it was a strange kind of moment to, because, you know, if you look at, I mean, it's great that, uh, you know, if, if, if Colonel Yeager goes up in the X1 or whatever it is trying to, you know, uh, break the sound barrier. Um, the expectation is that he's very likely going to die. A lot of those guys did. It's not, it's an experimental prototype. And you don't put the Secretary of Defense in the back seat with him when he's doing it. Um, and yet with R101, that's what they did. They put all kinds of officials and, and lay people and civilians up there. And the only, and, and, and again, the Secretary of State for, for Air, with with a thinking that would remind you a lot of the Titanic, kind of, which was 18 years earlier, uh, you know, believing that it was so safe that that everything was going to be okay, he wanted to put 100 MPs up, a huge chunk of the British government, but fortunately, weather prevented him. So, it's October 30th, 1930. They take off from Cardington. October 4th. October 4th. I'm sorry, October yeah. 4th, 1930. They take off from Cardington, and uh, they're over France. And what happens? 
So they're going to prove, this is the flight where they're going to prove that they can fly. Lord Thompson is going to prove that he can fly from, you know, in this case, Cardington, Bedford, north of London, to Karachi, which was then in India, and back, and prove that this technology was going to work. So they take off. They cross the channel. The, the whole Loaded with dignitaries and, and full of passengers. In this- yeah, they, they, had, they, were, they were very confident. And so, of course, Thompson is aboard and the head of British Civil Aviation is aboard. And Herbert Scott, who is the great hero who did the first double crossing of, of the Atlantic in an airship in 1919, is aboard. And they're, they're heading toward India. Um, basically, day one is going to take them to... Uh, Egypt, and then they're going to refuel and and go on from there. And they get about seven and a half hours along the way. And uh, and they go down in a storm about 90 miles north of Paris, which is interesting on any number of levels. They, they uh, It was a huge tragedy. Uh, you know, a hydrogen fire burns very hot and does terrible things to human beings. And, uh, and this tragedy, it, it was one of the first world's first big media events when it crashed and it was seen as this great national tragedy and there was something about the size of the ambition the size of the airship because i mean look in world war one seven hundred fifty thousand british subjects died okay and this thing you know more than the hindenburg but only 48 did it was you know full uh, funeral services at at St. Paul's and and Westminster and a million people in the streets through Whitehall and it was a great national tragedy. There was something about the just the size of these things, the ambition, I guess, uh, because for them it was like a moonshot. And sometimes I think it would have been like you know if we had had the moonshot and and you know if Apollo thirteen had crashed, there would have been a national mourning. And even though only a few people died, um, this was Britain, Great Britain's moonshot. This is their empire moonshot, and everybody knew it. And before that departure on October fourth, nineteen thirty, you know, a million people had visited this airship at, at her mast in Cardington uh, in the month before, including the Prince of Wales. It was just this enormous event in British history, and uh, and it was disappointing on so many levels. One of which was that you know it was a failure of British technology. So they're at 1,400 feet at 2 in the morning, and they're in the middle of the storm, and they go into their first dive. And the storm has ripped open the the, the, can, the linen at the nose of the airplane. They right. go into the first dive. The most dive, vulnerable point. Right. They recover from that dive. They're now at 537 feet, even lower than they are the length of the airship. And they go into a second dive that's unrecoverable. But they hit at, at a pretty low speed. They're only going about 13 miles an hour, and everything's oh, yeah. fine until... One of the diesel hot diesel engines breaks the skin, breaks into hydrogen, and boom, the whole thing goes up. Yeah, and this is what they were, you know, why they were so vulnerable. I mean, the reason it was going so slowly it was because it was sort of breasting into a 40, 50 mile an hour wind. It shouldn't have been. One of the, what, what happened to it was that incredibly fragile cover, the linen, the dope linen, had given way, which then exposed the forward airbags, airbags, hydrogen gas bags to the wind, which then shattered them. So you had this enormous loss of lift because hydrogen is what lifts the thing, right? So when you lose all that enormous loss of lift forward, as you say, it goes into a dive. And uh, and then there's this kind of moment where it, it comes out of the dive briefly and then goes into another one that finally kills it. When it hits the ground, 
they're not exactly sure where the spark came from, but it really doesn't matter. You've got so many hot diesels around you and calcium flare is sitting right in the control car, which are water activated, you know, things like that. So what was interesting about the second dive, which is that nobody could explain it. And they tried very, very hard um, to do it. And it's something I, I, I won't get into here because it's technically a little bit detailed, but I do in my book. Uh, it was a mystery really until a few years ago um, when uh, this wonderful uh, British engineer figured out how th that what happened was a, an elevator cable broke. Uh, and when we say elevator cable, you, you, you think in terms of aircraft or ones that you fly. I mean, the from the control car, the cable goes 400 feet back to a flap that is, uh, uh, I, I'm trying to remember how, how big these things were. It's just absolutely enormous. So it's, it's, it's uh, anyway, but it was a, it was a mystery that wasn't solved until very recently. And in fact, um, nobody even read that article. So my book is the first place that you can, that most people will ever read what really happened to R101. But what really but what caused it was disaster in the cover and the gas bags up front. That That is what set it off, which were the things, the very things that they ignored in the process of developing the, air, the airship. And the devastation from the loss of the R-101 killed the R-100 project, too, which they retired and was actually a successful airship. It had flown transatlantically to, to had Canada. Flown transatlantic? Yeah. It killed, it killed the British air, airship program. Bam, just killed it dead, which is something considering the just how breathtaking their ambition was right up till that moment, spending all this money and doing all this massive inputs of technology, and, and but then bam, dead. And then you would have thought, because, you know, so many Zeppelins went down in World War One. I. I mean, if you start fr from 1900 forward, I mean, almost every single one of them crashed. And, if, and most of them went up in hydrogen fireballs. I mean, this is what they were. And we came out of the war and the hor horrific crash of Britain's big attempt, the R-38 in 1921, uh, the, the U.S. Shenandoah in 1925, the Roman, I mean, just met horrific crashes. They didn't stop. R-101, horrific crash. And you think, well, okay, well, maybe by this point, it's over, right? We're not going to do this anymore. This technology doesn't work. No, the Americans, 1933, the Akron, which I described, goes down, and then its sister ship, the Macon, two years later, goes down at the Pacific. And are we done yet? No, no, we're not done yet. The Germans think they can really perfect this idea of international travel. Uh, and so they developed this this 800-plus-foot-long uh, ship called the Hindenburg, which we know what happened to that. And then you would think, okay, well, that really, okay, that would have been it, right? Okay, no more of these things. No, no, there's actually a, a Hindenburg sister ship called the Graf Zeppelin II that um, that is continuing. It's flying in 1939. It's spying on. It's 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 being used for Nazi propaganda purposes, dropping leaflets and speakers, and was used at one point to spy on Britain and. It didn't crash, but only because it wasn't allowed to live long enough to do it. They scrapped it just before the war. But in a way, the, the, this whole history of airships is a history of a bad idea. It just took X amount of time. You know, and we're talking about, I think, when you guys were talking about the V-22, I'm no expert on these things, but, you know, this tilt-rotor aircraft, I was like, a, I don't know how many generations of tilt rotor there were before that, but I don't think very many. This is what a new technology looks like. And I remember reading articles back in the day. 
of how many crashes and incidents and horrific problems they had with this thing. Right. And I don't know whether this recent crash is part of that or not, but you expect that in a new technology, right? I mean, this is what you're going to get. And if you if you look at air airships in that sense, it was a new technology and it didn't work. It shouldn't have been allowed to stay around as long as, as it did. Um, uh, and a lot of people died because of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sam, what was the spark that uh, caused you to, to write this book? It was really, I just, you know, I was reading a, 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 a wonderful history of the British Empire, a three-volume history called Pax Britannica by Jan Morris, who's a great writer, and there was just two pages in it at some point in the third volume, which was the kind of uh, farewell the trumpets the, as the British Empire's, you know, as the sun is setting. Uh, well, or, or it's the end of the empire. And it was all about how this airship was somehow all bound up with the decline of the empire. And, and uh, I thought it was, it was a great story. So I just I wanted to tell the story. The Hindenburg to me is not that great a story. It, the story is what caused the boom, which is interesting. I mean, a lot's been written about that. But the R101 is, is, a, is a fascinating story that goes with all these characters running around. I thought it was a better story. And because it was linked to this I, in the largest sense, the British kind of attempt to save themselves, to save their empire, to re to reconfigure their empire, and and when it failed, uh, it, it was it was part of a larger failure. So I I, I like books that um, or stories rather that are are good, just good old fashioned tales, just a good fat you know fashioned narrative, um, but also that links to a larger idea, and so that's what drew me to it. Yeah. So we do see some airships in the um, design development cycle um, these days. I'm thinking about the, the hybrid air vehicles. The Airlander. The Airlander. Um, things like that. They talk about an Airlander 10 and Airlander 50, uh, which is the tons of payload for, you know, for each of those. And I don't know what's changed. Uh, you know, were, were some lessons not learned or... Um, is the technology you know different enough so that we're starting over with new concepts? Well, it's, it's these things are not rigid airships. Um, you will never see a rigid airship again. Um, they're, these are blimps, and as you know, a blimp is a very good fair weather aircraft. I mean, you can see them floating over the Bengals game, right? I mean, they 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 do not they do not do well in bad weather. Um, the new ones, I know, I'm not an expert on the new ones but you can see them they uh they can uh they can use bernoulli's principle to take off which is very cool i mean airships also fly by bernoulli fly both by by lift from hydrogen and also if they fly with their nose you know five degrees up they 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 can hold themselves up they can hold more weight than they normally would have um but these new things they can take off down a runway um you can see the aerodynamic shape which is of the airlander anyway which is meant to decrease the their vulnerability to wind and uh you know they'll, they'll never within the confines of of i mean again you have the same problem if you don't have a rigid airship then you then you are limited in your size and therefore you are limited in what you can lift um they would be limited in terms of what they could lift but you know I was reading about one of them. Maybe it was the Airlander or something. You're going to take, like, if you and I or I had an extra half million bucks, we could go to the North Pole, and they would just put you right on the North Pole. 
Yeah. Okay. If I have the extra half million, I, I'm doing that. <laughs> I don't right now, but but uh, that's an example where, uh, well, that's that's tourism. Hmm. But terrific! What a great idea. Uh, uh, we'll never see airships the size of the other ones again. But these, yeah, there are improved technologies, improved engine technologies, improved imp- certainly aerodynamics uh, are improved, and of course these are helium ships and not. Uh, and not hydrogen, which we'll never see again either. Well, I don't think so anyway. But they still fly in the troposphere, and that's where the weather is. And so, who knows? Yeah, yeah. It's like you know, you. I'm not sure I'd want to be up in one in a in a you know in in a 70 mile an hour wind. But um, but yes, I definitely want to go to the North Pole. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds cold. All right, Sam. Tell us where we can learn more about the book. You have a website. Yeah, I do. Uh, scgwynne.com, S-C-G-W-Y-N-N-E.com. You learn about it there. Um, and it's available. And it came out in a few months ago, and it's available in all the bookstores still. So, uh, and the name of it is uh, His Majesty's Airship, about the crash of the R-101. So it is also obviously available on Amazon and any of the online services. But I, but if you go to the website, you, you, you'll see re- the reviews you know, whatever. Uh, only the good reviews, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's because there aren't any. There aren't any bad ones. No, no, there's still bad reviews. Yeah, yeah. we we occasionally get bad reviews, <laughs> but mostly good ones. Sam, thanks so much. It's a fascinating story. The 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 R101 is a it's a fascinating unknown story and a larger disaster than the Hindenburg. But because we didn't have a camera crew on site, nobody yeah. knows about it. You got that right. And it's interesting too that that you know the that's how the world knows about the Hindenburg and the world doesn't know about the other 75 of them that went up that way. And, you know, it was interesting because the Hindenburg, uh, just one last note, the reason we know about it is because of that, those 30 seconds of whatever film that played in every movie theater in the world, silent film. There was no audio with that. So in 1960, some enterprising British producer took the radio AP broadcast and married it to the silent film. And now you've got, the thing we all know, oh, the humanity as you watch it burn. So. Yes, yes. Um, interestingly enough, the um, the software that I mostly use for producing this podcast is called Hindenburg Journalist. And oh. you, you might wonder, why does audio software have a na- have the name Hindenburg? Is that the name of the, you know, the, the creator? No, not at all. And the... the Explanation is that when the Hindenburg crashed and, uh, and and exploded, it was kind of the first time that radio reporting came, you know, into its own. Yeah, it sort of launched that phase of journalism, mm-hmm. and so uh, it's it's sort of a uh, homage to uh, to that fact that they that they named the software that because it was originally intended actually for. Uh, for journalists, for spoken word kinds of editing, which uh, that's what a podcast is. So, yeah, it's just sort of. Yeah, well, it, it, and, you know, the Hindenburg, the who was named, I, I guess, what, for a, a, a president of Germany. But it, they the Nazis wanted to call it the Hitler. So it was almost the Hitler. Oh, no. Somebody some uh, they were prevailed upon to, to 
back off a little on the name. Yeah, so somebody had, it would be less less welcome in New York if it was called the Hitler. I think so. So your software could be known as the Hitler. Oh my saying. gosh, <laughs> I'm glad it's not. <laughs> the, glad it's you, you'd be explaining why on earth your your software is called Hitler. I know. And I, I use the same software, and I always thought that the company was located in Germany. I just looked it up. Turns out that it's a Danish software company. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 But that's why it's named Hindenburg. It's, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. All right. I didn't know it. Sam, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. It. Really. It's a fascinating story. We'll have the links in the show notes so that you can uh, you know, find the website. And as Sam mentioned, you know, wherever you buy books, uh, you'll, you'll find it. It's but there. We'll... It's there at least. Uh, it's not there forever, but it's there now. Yeah. All right. Great. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. What's up with the geeks? Well, I'm back, finally. That's the big news. Welcome back. We really missed you. And I know our listeners missed you a whole lot, too. Uh, well, it was, um, so we, as, you know, as you listening know, we uh, made the decision to uh, replay some interviews from the past. The other option was uh, produce nothing for a little over two months, which we didn't really like that option. So uh, we did replay some interviews. Maybe you found some interesting. Maybe you didn't. I don't know. Um, but we'd kind of like some feedback from you uh, on that concept. Uh, just send, you know, send us an email, thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. Did you listen to the uh, intervening episodes or did you find them interesting or not interesting? Just give us your thoughts on, on that because uh, next time I take off for a couple of months, I don't know. We might do something different. Might do something the same. I'm not sure. Maybe the best of the geeks wasn't that good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's another thing. People say, they'll do a best of show. Uh, when all you have is gigabytes of audio files, it's hard to pick out best of. Because it's not like you're dealing with something that was printed and you can just, you know, look through the transcripts and you know, see different things. You, it's just audio files, so it's it's really hard to... Plus, my memory is horrible, and I can't remember what I did yesterday, let alone what a best of was a year ago. Well, I have something that might help you, Max. I'll tell you how I learned about it another time, but there's a new beta app that's called podcast.adobe.com, and it uses artificial intelligence. And you can upload your podcast, your MP3 or your WAV file, and it will give you a printout. And you can actually edit by editing the yes, text. Yes, I've seen some of those. Yeah, you edit the text and it edits the audio. Yeah, yeah that's that's something interesting. Um, speaking of podcast technology, before we, before we go on to uh, what's up with the rest of the geeks, uh, some of you may have heard of something called Podcasting 2.0. Probably most of you have never heard that term before. And it's kind of hard to describe simply, but it's um, without getting technical. Here's the technical. It, it's like an expansion of the uh, RSS feed to include many, many more capabilities. So, for example, one thing being developed is um, cross-app commenting. So that would be something where you could be listening to us in your podcasting app of choice. And as you're listening you could type in some comments or thoughts and you would see those alongside all the other comments that 
people entered from whatever other app they used um, to some things like that. Uh, there's just a whole whole variety of things. So for those of you who care and and have heard and have heard of podcasting 2.0, at this point we're just sort of watching it because uh, it's not all mature yet. But um, there could be some changes in the future that would make the the experience uh, uh, better. Uh, one is um, transcripts that follow the audio, so you'd be able to see on the screen text transcribed from the audio as you listen to the audio. There's just a bunch of different things that that it can do. Um, So that's something for the future. So, David, what's going on at the American Helicopter Museum? Well, um, we had a very successful summer. Um, We had two summer camps, uh, four days of helicopter rides. But upcoming, that for our listeners, we've got... um, in September, we've got on the 14th and the 28th, two different lectures. Um, they will be handled through Zoom. Um, one is Igor Sikorsky's Faith of Our Fathers by um, Robert Beggs, who actually is on our um, board of directors. Um, the other one will be Robert Bar- Robin Bartlett, Vietnam and Writing History on the 14th. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes. And two other major events is Girls in Aviation, which we'll talk a little bit about afterward later on. And if you haven't yet, um, my Sikorsky exhibit will be closing on October 1st. Uh, it's hard to believe it's been up for four months already, but it's this, the year's rapidly closing. The other thing is we are looking for authors and um, writers who would be interesting to present in 2024. So if any of you have um, an interest in doing that, um, who are listeners, um, give us, give me an email, uh, send me an email, um, and we'll go from there. Cool. Yeah. I think we have some qualified listeners for sure. All right, Max Trescott, what's going on with you? Well, it's uh, show-and-tell time here, so I'm going to show my first uh, item here. So uh, if you guys want to take a look and see what that is. You got a tail rotor. I've, I've got half of a tail rotor. Yeah, Uh-oh. absolutely. So, so it's about uh, two and a half feet long, and this comes from an Arbin, uh, Robinson R66. Turns out they uh, they give these to pilots uh, after they crash. No, that's not how I got one. <laughs> 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 no, this was. Uh, it, it turns out that they have uh, their life limited, so after so many yeah, thousands of hours, they have to pull them off and replace them. Uh, so I happened to acquire one of these. Uh, but my my summer project was I passed my check ride. I am now officially a a, a private helicopter pilot. So <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I, I just want to say it was uh, it was kind of a fun endeavor, and I hope will inspire some other folks to try it. I'm I'm 66 years old, and for me it was kind of an experiment to see, hey, do I still have it to, <laughs> together enough to go try something, you know, this complicated? And the answer is. Apparently, um, and I, uh, it took uh, just it was under six months total from uh, you know start to finish, uh, and so it's significantly easier to add on a helicopter rating to an existing uh, pilot uh, certificate, uh, and so uh, I'm guessing a lot of our listeners are, are pilots. So if you're interested in doing that, um, check out um, episode 283 of uh, AviationNewsTalk.com/slash 283. 
which was all about how you can uh, start now to add a helicopter rating to your your pilot certificate. So I will say that it was a very uh, challenging, fun, and you know, gratifying experience. And um, you know, I want to offer you know rides to any of you guys because I, I just want to state my qualifications. I have met, I have officially met the minimum standard for being a helicopter pilot. So that's <laughs> the, mi- the minimum standard. <laughs> no, it's true. It's absolutely true. I, by passing a check ride, it means that you have met the minimum standards for being a pilot. So does that inspire confidence? Is that something? Yeah. <laughs> You're allowed to take a passenger now. Two questions. Have you taken a passenger and do you feel competent enough to take a passenger? Well, you know, it's really interesting. I was surprised to find out that Robinson recommends that uh, new uh, helicopter pilots not take passengers till they have 100 hours uh, in time in the uh, the helicopter. Um, and the flight school that I'm at honors that and says, nope, we won't let two pilots take passengers till they have 100 hours of uh, time. So I just decided, what the heck, I'll go ahead and work on additional ratings. So I'm working on adding on my uh, instrument rating, which, again, is uh, significantly easier if you already have an instrument rating. It's a total of 15 hours of instrument time versus uh, 40 hours if uh, you don't have an instrument time. So that makes it uh, you know, relatively short by comparison. I will say that it's a little harder to stare at the numbers uh, as I'm you know, scanning the instruments just because of the vibration. Uh, the particular glass panel we have in this helicopter is some of the numbers are a little small and the vibration is more than you would find in an airplane. So it's, once again, a fun challenge of a different kind. Hmm. Well, speaking of helicopters, this is sort of a shout out, but a friend of the show who you haven't met, uh, Max West, but I think everybody else has met, is Ernie Eaton, who's a helicopter pilot up here in Sanford and a great guy. And his birthday was uh, was this Sunday of this week that the show comes out. And uh, I just want to give a shout out to him. He's a great supporter of the show. He's a regular listener. He's helped me with so many different things and interviews and, and take me, took me on my first real helicopter flight uh, the, the first time I was ever in, in the right seat. And, uh, and even volunteered to take my friends at Spurwing Farm up for a flight around the pattern. But I was, it was her birthday and I set it up for the ride. He was willing to do it. And I was so disappointed when she said, no, no. I just, <laughs> just I was yeah. too, far, too afraid. <laughs> Happy birthday, Ernie. Let me just mention my very first helicopter ride. I think it was back in 1967, and uh, I flew on New York Airways, which flew from the local her- airports in the New York City area to the top of the Pan Am building. You flew from so, the top of the Pan Am building? Abs- Absolutely. Oh, so wow. uh, we would take, I, I mean, I was, I was a, a kid, and I remember we took the ride up the elevator to this really tall building in midtown Manhattan. We're up there on top of the roof, and there's a large uh, twin blade. Uh, I, I, David will correct me. I, I'm pretty sure it's a Sikorsky. Uh, no, it was a it was a Vertol KV-107, otherwise known as a CH-46. There we go. Good. Thank you for, for coming in. Uh, but that was pretty exciting. And of course, that you can no longer do that. There was an accident years later and they discontinued that service. But that was, uh, it was pretty impressive, you know, as a kid to, to take off in the middle of downtown Manhattan from the top of a building and fly to, I'm guessing, LaGuardia. Yeah, the Pan Am building sat right over Penn Station on 42nd Street. So it was right in the middle of, of Manhattan. And uh, it, it, when that accident happened, it really, it was a disaster. But uh, what an amazing way to travel. Hmm. Micah, you've got some interesting and fun news for us. 
I've had an amazing couple of weeks that I would just like to share with you. First of all, I had my first flight in a Cirrus SR-22 uh, a week ago on Sunday. It was great. It was a beautiful paint job. Uh, it was painted red and black. I felt like the Red Baron. And what a beautiful airplane. I understand why Max likes to have it as his office. It's It was just so comfortable and, and so beautiful to fly in and, and, and just amazing. And I, I was offered the opportunity to... Uh, to fly it for a little bit, but the the side stick control had me a little intimidated that first time, and I think maybe next time I get offered, I uh, I may take the pilot up on that. But it was so kind of him to take me up and give me that experience, and it's so fast. 150 miles an hour, we took off from Portland, and all of a sudden we were in Camden. We turned around and came back and uh, did the, the harbor visual approach. Just Just gorgeous. But that's not all. There's more. There's more. Our good friend Major Rick... Well, when we first met him, he was a Captain Rick, and he was a C-130 pilot. Now he's a major, now he's Major Rick, and he's an instructor uh, on a C-17 with the uh, 911th Air Wing in Pittsburgh. And uh, I had dinner with him and his wonderful wife, and uh, he also told me that the 911th has the only C-17 aircraft 3292. 917th. Thank you. But anyway, the only C-17 with invasion stripes. And boy, does that look beautiful. So invasion stripes are the black and white stripes. Were they black and white? The C-17 got permitted. The Air Force has implemented a new program called the Heritage Program, which is air, current aircraft get repainted in replica vintage aircraft. Um, since next year will be the... 80th anniversary of D-Day? Yeah, the 80th anniversary. Transport units are able to paint invasion stripes. In, in the 4th of June in 1944, um, an order came down to paint black and white stripes on every aircraft that was going to be participating in the Normandy raid. Um, most people think of invasion stripes as these nice printed, nice painted things, but really they were really mops and with black and white stripes. Um, so yeah, all those modelers that have spent hours masking, that's not the way they really looked. Um, but any, any aircraft that was going to be participating in the uh, invasion from Spitfires to Mustangs to um, B-26s to all of the transports, which primarily were C-17s. Um, the bombers were not required. Um, it was only the medium-range bombers. But so thing, you will never see a thing like a B-17 or a B-24. The strategic bombers did not get invasion stripes. So in this case, we have a C-17 represent. It's, it has the stripes... I know they painted them on the fuselage. I don't know if they painted them on the wing. Yeah, they're on the wings as well. Okay. Um, Rammstein Air Force Base, their C-130J unit also has one now with on the wings, and um, and I believe Little Rock also has one. So all of those aircraft, all of the transport aircraft are recalling the D-Day invasion, which will have the 80th anniversary next year. I'm sure you're going to see a lot of aircraft next year have black and white stripes for the commemoration, uh, considering 
there probably isn't many, many people left alive that remember the D-Day invasion. Uh, Micah has a photo of the uh, the C-17 with the invasion stripes. Uh, Micah, send me the original of that. No. I got it off the web someplace, Max, so I don't oh, know where it's the not, original Oh, it's is. not your photo. No, okay. it's not. But, um, and I, I just double-checked, and just to uh, clarify for our listeners, it, it, I, I'm surprised, but it, it is a 9-11th air wing. Uh, 9-11th, yeah. Yeah, You're I, just, right. I just double-checked, so I just wanted to make sure our listeners knew, and I want to give credit where credit is due, because uh, for getting permission to do that, those air, those invasion stripes, uh, and according to Rick, it was not an easy thing. Uh, they deserve that credit. So, mm-hmm. And then lastly, there, there's one other thing uh, that, that was just amazing for me this week, and that is that uh, on August 26th, it marked the 54th anniversary of the first time I ever flew. And uh, that's a especially important time for me. I flew from JFK to, to uh, New Orleans with my grandfather. It was his first flight, too. And if you're interested in what that was like, you can hear that on Airplane Geeks episode 238, almost, I think, 10 years ago. First wow. story I ever did for the Airplane Geeks. And, uh, and related to that, when I was going to New Orleans, my grandfather's because he was going to meet a group of old compadres with the from the survivors of the USS Memphis, which was uh, a huge ship, ACR-10, that was cast ashore on the rocks of Santo Domingo by a rogue wave on August 29th, 1916. And um, it was the greatest or one of the greatest peacetime naval disasters in U.S. Navy history. I was honored to be a guest with Chase Dalton on his podcast, the U.S. Naval History Podcast, and and talk about that because nobody knows it, nobody remembers it. And I, when I was 20 years old, was appointed to the executive committee of that organization. I'm probably the last living member. Um, so huh. it was an honor to be able to bring that out and help honor that organization and the people that perished and also that won the Medal of Honor for that and during that awful tragedy. Hmm. All right. Ian, to stay. Um, oh, quick shout out. Uh, September 23rd, 2023, is Girls in Aviation Day. This is the ninth annual Girls in Aviation Day. And you can uh, learn more about that. It's really grown tremendously, I think. Um, uh, a little uh, pause for the pandemic, but uh, it's 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 been big. And you can get more information from... Women in Aviation International, uh, visit wai.org slash G-I-A-D, which stands for Girls in Aviation Day. And you can learn about uh, some of the activities and how how you may be able to get involved participating in some of the activities of that day or creating some. Uh, again, that's uh, Ninth Annual Girls in Aviation Day. I, I can't wait for our we're, – we're actually on the program. We are actually getting um, quite a few Marine Corps um, vehicles coming in on static display as a recruitment tool. Um, we will have at least six women pilots at the museum as well as a women mechanics, women air traffic controllers, and uh, aeronautical engineers also. So we're really looking forward to um, bringing out all the works at the museum. So, and just so you know, women in aviation, we are um, we're honorary members here at the Geeks because we way back in the day 
made a major donation to them when we had a fundraiser. Um, but, you know, and I think Rob's still a current member, which most people don't realize. Um, if you're a guy, you can be part of Women in Aviation, and it's a really good organization. Lots of good scholarships. And um, this Girls in Aviation Day is becoming really huge. So it's a good thing. And Max? We want to get Eileen Borkman back on the show, and she has a brand new book out, or reasonably brand new, called Fly Girls Revolt. And wouldn't it be great if we could get her on for record with the 18th, on the 18th or the 25th to honor that day? Ah, that's an idea. All right. With that, thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We want to thank our guest this episode, Sam Gwynn. Again, his book is His Majesty's Airship, The Life and Tragic Death of the World's Largest Flying Machine. And uh, his website is scgwynne.com, sgwynne.com. Of course, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Look for show notes with links to the subjects of uh, this podcast, the topics that we talked about. Uh, the direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 763. And our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Max Trescott, you haven't done this in a while, have you? Where can we find you? Well, let's see. I think I still know where I am. Uh, you can always uh, reach me by going out to aviationnewstalk.com, click on contact at the top of the page, and you can also find the podcast, Aviation News Talk Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Good. And uh, how about you, David Vanderhoof? Uh, you can find me lurking in the halls of the American Helicopter Museum, and we have a brand-new website, um, and that is helicoptermuseum.org. Check it out. Um, you can buy some merch. You can see our helicopters, and you can see um, a lot of my exhibits. Or you can find me um, eventually back on Thursday or Friday mornings on the UAV Digest. Yeah, we have to start that up again, too. All right. And Micah, how about you? The easiest way to find me is probably on Zitter, uh, which kind of reminds me of adolescent acne, but uh, I'm not sure what to call it anymore. I, I, I refuse to call it by the name. It's still Twitter to me, but okay, Zitter maybe. And on Zitter, I'm Maine Fly, M-A-I-N-E, like the state, fly, like let's go fly, Maine Fly. Very good. And I'm Max Flight. You can find out where I hang out by visiting 30,000feet.com all spelled out. So please join us again. Well, actually, so we're back into the uh, usual format, except that next Monday, and we record these on Mondays, is Labor Day, and we always take Labor Day off. So we do have uh, some, uh, some interviews. We have Hillel's interviews from Oshkosh, and Micah mentioned uh, some interviews from Spurwink, so we're the, the fly-in at Spurwink. So we're going to try to... Uh, give you some of those uh, next week and then we go back to this format with all of us Monday night gathering trying to say something semi-intelligent so please join us next week though as you you listen to us talking about aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast bye everybody keep the blue side up miska muska mouseketeer airplane geeks and time is here <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> Good night, everybody. 